Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. There's something beautiful about it. There's something wonderful about it. There's something curious about it. It's our home. Well, that it is. Uh, maybe you've heard that song already. Part of a unique Travel Alberta campaign featuring uh, the one and only Alberta country star Brett Kissel. A song called Our Home. Uh, anybody seen that? Uh, Saturday, or rather last Sunday it debuted as uh, the Battle of Alberta got underway. And, well, yes, there is much that uh, divides us as a province. Like, say, for example, uh, the interpretation of Rule 49.2 in the NHL rulebook. Uh, just to think of one example. Uh, but there is much that unites us. Uh, and certainly uh, our love for our province is is one of those things. Uh, and certainly it's a love that Brett, Brett Kissel shares, uh, one that, that he really injects those emotions to, obviously, uh, in this uh, in this new song. And look, Brett's uh, had a lot going on these days. He's uh, fresh off a Juno Award for Country Album of the Year. He's on tour. He's got a new song out, a, a collaboration with R&B group, 98 Degrees, which is pretty interesting. Uh, he's going to be in Alberta, uh, right around the Calgary Stampede in July, the Cowboys Music Festival. So much more at uh, brettkissel.com. Joining us to talk about all of this and more, very pleased to welcome to the program, Alberta Zone, uh, country singer, country star Brett Kissel joining us. Brett, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. It's definitely great to connect again and there's a lot of happy people in the province of Alberta right now if they're cheering for the Oilers and a lot of unhappy people if you're a Flames fan today. Yeah, no kidding. We can talk about that. I mean, I, I hope you weren't yelling too much because I understand you, you recently had some some voice or some vocal issues. You had to cancel the show. I think it was the first time ever for you. How are you doing, first of all? Well, I mean, thanks for asking. No, I, I'm, I'm definitely doing a lot better now. It's uh, definitely a scary situation for me to be in. Um, I was in Peterborough, Ontario. We had a, a four-day run Thursday to Sunday, and it was very unfortunate having to, you know, postpone concerts because, you know, of, of laryngitis and uh, acute laryngitis, what my oh, vocal yeah. coach and my doctor had said. And it's something I'd never been through before. You can usually sing through sickness, but yeah. it's one of those things after, you know, many years of really not touring, um, you know, and just being at home, when you go back out on the road, and you kind of decide that you're going to go full throttle again. Uh, my body had other plans. Wow. Yeah, that would be scary because, I mean, this is, this is what you do. This is your livelihood, and that, that tool doesn't work. I mean, that's that's got to be unnerving. Yeah, it, is, it definitely is a scary moment because I, it's not that I'm an athlete. I mean, if you, if you, if you look at me and you see my, my physique, <laughs> you'll know I'm a dad with a dad bod to four right. kids. But the reality is, is that... I think, you know, it's it's the most important instrument and muscle in, in my body for my career. So when you don't use it for so long, um, I think it was just a little irresponsible, you know, to, to think that I could just go and get back in the saddle quite in that way. But I think with proper training now and definitely a different mindset, I'm not going to put my body through mm-hmm. what I did and definitely, you know, take care of it a lot better than I have been over the last couple of years. 
Right. Let's talk about this song, Our Home. And as mentioned, I mean, we have the Battle of Alberta. What what a opportunity, what a moment to debut this song, a celebration of the province. And and yeah, this was uh, one of those events that unites us as a province, but also divides us as a province. All true Albertans have their hockey loyalties. But, you know, it was a real cool moment. And, and what a celebration of this province. Tell us about the song, first of all. Well, I'm extremely proud of the song. And, you know, when Travel Alberta had been you know, kind of knocking on our door over the last several months to say, hey, we'd really like to do some collaborative work together. Now that people are getting back in the saddle and travel is a lot more open now and people have an opportunity to really come and visit this beautiful part of planet Earth, which is Alberta. You know, the team at Travel Alberta said, hey, would you consider writing us a song? And I was thinking, is this going to be a commercial? Like, what is it really going to be? Because Mm -hmm. if I'm going to write something, it has to come from the heart and I don't want it to be a, a real promo piece, to be honest. I want it to be very meaningful. So I sat with it for months until, quite frankly, Rob, the song came out of the clouds and it, it fell It fell into my lap. And I was talking to my dad, Gordon, and we were in Nashville together, actually. And I said, man, I got to write this song for Alberta. And I just, I just don't know what to say. And I said, because Alberta is something magical about it. And curious and wonderful it's so many things it's our home really mm-hmm. and it was my dad who said well that's why don't you just write exactly what you said and i thought wow you're kind of <laughs> right so i took 15 minutes and i wrote wow. all of the great things i love about the province and now we've got ourselves a very special song yeah it really is and i mean obviously it resonates with albertans clearly but it's yeah it's it, i mean it's meant as a showcase of this province right it's about telling others our story and very much so. And I think the, the coolest thing for me as an artist, Rob, was getting a chance to watch that video come to life and hear these lyrics come to life during the Battle of Alberta. You know, when the announcer said, it's the National Hockey League playoffs tonight <laughs> on Hockey Night in Canada, and the song started, I got goosebumps, and I got goosebumps thinking about it right now because Hockey Night in Canada and the Battle of Alberta is ingrained in every single one of us, whether we've, you're a fifth generation like me, Albertan, or sixth generation like my kids, or you're brand new to this province and you, you moved from somewhere and you've been here for five minutes. You understand the value of hockey. You understand how beautiful our province is and, you know, how important the battle of Alberta is. So it was pretty special. Yeah, it sure was. I mean, I, I said at the outset, I said, everybody, be careful what you wish for. It's going to be a, an amazing ride. But for one side, it's going to hurt that much more when it's all over. And yeah, here we are today. And, and I think that that holds true. Uh, listen, a couple of things I wanted to touch on. You know, talk about uh, new songs. You got an interesting collaboration out that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, this seems, I don't know, out of left field, but this is really kind of cool. You collaborated with R&B group 98 Degrees. You guys got a new song out. It's called Ain't the Same. How did that all come together? It's a very interesting story because I, I was at the, the Much Music Video Awards in 2017, and uh, I actually shared a dressing room with 98 Degrees. And when you spend an entire day together, of course, small talk leads into genuine conversation leads to, hey, here's my number. Give me a call sometime. Right. So I, I wrote this song, Ain't the Same, with my friends Karen Kazowski and Tim Nichols. And the minute I, I sent it to my manager, Jim Cressman, I said, what, what do you think of this song? He said, you got to send this one to 98 Degrees because this has got a boy band feel all over it. And so that's exactly what we did. We texted it to them, and you'll never believe it. 
because this this kind of stuff never happens yeah. in the business. When we texted it to, to them, just the, the demo, they said, this song is great. Let's do it together. We're going to go into the studio today and we'll do our second verse. It, no, no red tape, no contracts, no lawyers, no attorneys, no record labels, no producers. Nobody got in the way. It was Nick Lachey and Jeff Timmons and Justin and Drew saying, we love this song. Let's do it together. We'll figure out the rest later. Wow. <laughs> it happened just like that. I mean, that's crazy. Very much so. The fastest collab and probably the most unique collab you know, I've ever done in my life. And these guys, you know, if they're dipping their toes in the waters of country music, I think they did an extraordinary job because, you know, if, if, you, if you listen to their second verse and their harmonies, I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful elevation to this song. Yeah, and you see more of that these days, it feels like. Like artists sort of, you know, dipping their toes in other genres or those kinds of collaborations and music that sort of transcends some of those those genre definitions. It, it's kind of cool to see, isn't it? It is. And you know what? Every now and then it happened in previous generations where you'd have, you know, Willie Nelson and, and, and Ray Charles or you'd have Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. But that was based a lot more on friendship as opposed to the true artistic driver that all of us now have. Because when you're listening to your own Apple Music playlist or your Spotify playlist or whatever it may be, Rob, same thing with me. You may go from, say, a Brett Kissel song now to a 98 Degrees song, which goes to Mariah Carey, which yeah. goes to Rihanna, which goes to Paul McCartney, to Frank Sinatra, to Eminem, and you circle all the way back to Brett Kissel some way, somehow. Yeah. And that's how people listen to music nowadays. So why not just make things easier and collaborate with two great brands on a really great song. Mentioned the Juno Award. Congrats on that. Juno uh, Award Country Album of the Year uh, for your album, What Is Life Show. Talk a bit about, you know, just how important that was to you. Well, I think the nomination at the beginning, you know, when, when that was announced earlier in the year, um, it, it gave me an opportunity to sit back and reflect on something so so magnificent and, and to be honest, quite magical um, in, in my life to write a record and record something in the heart of a very dark period uh, in my life and a very dark chapter for so many of us in Canada with things being shut down and locked down and, and everything. So I contemplated that big question, what is life? And all of the songs, maybe I guess were answers to that question, like make a life, not a living or from this day forward, or a song I wrote called If Kindness Was Contagious. So to get that type of recognition and have them announce my name at the Junos uh, was one of the most special things I've ever felt in, in, in my life. Well, you, you mentioned, you know, what things were like, you know, in 2020. And it's interesting because you're on tour, you're doing the Showtime tour, you're going to be performing the Cowboys Music Festival, part of the Stampede in Calgary this summer. So kind of more back to normal. But now you reflect back, you did that that tour in the summer of 2020 when really nobody was was touring or performing. You did all those outdoor drive-in shows. I mean, it raised all that money for charity. It was such an incredible event. And now that, you know, we're two years removed from that, you're back on tour. When you look back on that... I mean, how do you reflect on, on something like that? You know, obviously with a lot of fond memories, I think to be, to, to be the leader in, in, in that space was very special, but I think it was, it was more important to having an opportunity to bring people together and, and to honestly let country music do what it's always supposed to do, and that's bring people together in the tough times, in the good times. And so we had a lot to celebrate 
in terms of we finally get a chance in the province of Alberta, the province of Ontario, or province of Saskatchewan, wherever I played, gave us the green light to do these safe concerts mm-hmm. during this time. But I think it was so special to look out and understand that we are all sharing this experience together. And it was a once in a lifetime. So I look back on that chapter in my life with some of the most fond memories uh, ever. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. But of course, uh, you're in this uh, tour right now. Uh, BrettKissel.com for all tour dates and information. But as mentioned, uh, July in Calgary, the Cowboys Music Festival Stampede. That's going to be something. So uh, again, we got the album. It's out. What is life? Juno Award winning. The song Our Home also ain't the same is the song with 98 Degrees. That's out now as well. Brett, congrats uh, on everything. And uh, again, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, it means a lot. I can't wait to hit the road and maybe get you out to a a concert will uh, sip on a cocktail backstage and make up for lost time. That'd be awesome. All the best, Brad. Thanks again. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. All right, you too. There you go. Alberta's own country star, Brad Kissel. So a lot going on with him and uh, yeah, still cheering on his team in, uh, in the NHL playoffs. Anyway, it was interesting to see, by the way, speaking of the playoffs. And, uh, you know, the premier is the premier of Alberta. Right. And so I kind of get where he's coming from, but uh, sort of tweeting some congratulations to the Oilers and declaring that, that the Oilers are now Alberta's team. Is there even such a thing as Alberta's team? Because there are two teams in Alberta. It's a rivalry. It means something. And I don't want to speak for, you know, for, for either group of fans here. But I'm of the opinion that the fans of one team do not cheer for the other. I don't think Oilers fans were cheering for the Flames in 04. I don't think Flames fans were cheering for the Oilers in 06. And I don't think Flames fans are going to be cheering for the Oilers now. I don't think there is Alberta's team. There are two. They engaged in a a historic battle this year. One emerged. But it doesn't make it Alberta's team, does it? Not everybody gets to be Jack Bauer's best friend. There can only be one. And uh, obviously it was uh, Chloe O'Brien. That was from the last episode of the last season of that hit TV show. Uh, Mary Lynn Ricecup, maybe best known for that role as Chloe O'Brien on 24. But you know her from other shows like uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, many others, both TV and film roles. Uh, she's got a new book out. It's called Famish, My Life at the Edge of Stardom. And with that is the Famous Comedy Tour, which comes to Calgary a week from today, next weekend, uh, the Friday and Saturday at Yuck Yucks in Calgary, then the following weekend at Yuck Yucks in Edmonton. So joining us to talk about the book, the tour, a remarkable career is actor, comedian, Mary Lynn Rice. Got much more at MaryLynn, MaryLynn.com. Mary Lynn, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, that was a perfect intro. You got all the information in there. Um, that's right around the corner. I'm yes. very excited to be. Cu- Can you believe I'm doing Calgary and Edmonton back to back Canadian dates and a week like apart? Like, are you just you going to hang out in, in either city the whole time, or what? Where, what? where should I hang out? Well, it's tough. You know, I mean, we're in the same province. Cities are relatively close together. Big rivals, though. You want to be delicate in such matters, so. It's it's dicey. <laughs> Who should I vote for? <laughs> yeah. So, 
Absolutely. Uh, look, so much to talk about here. Obviously, we'll talk about the tour, the book, of course. Uh, let's talk about 24, one of the most iconic TV shows, dare I say, certainly the last 20 or 30 years. Obviously, launched you into the to the stratosphere but you know that's kind of that's like a life-changing kind of job isn't it? you've done a lot of films a lot of tv shows but where does that rank in terms of kind of defining you and in, in your career oh absolutely uh i mean i entered onto the show in season three and it was already a massive success and i had only done comedy up until that point so it was very intimidating to me for a lot of reasons and when I first signed on, it was only for a couple of shows. And, of course, my character was uh, annoying to people. And then they started <laughs> writing me, helping Jack Bauer. And then, you know, it, it added this other dimension and, and, and took me to a whole different place because people knew they could trust my character. And they, they enjoyed, um, you know, what annoyed them before. They were loyal to me as I was to Jack Bauer. Yeah. And I mean, look, not only was the show a hit, it was it was controversial, I guess, in some ways. I mean, it was it was political at some level. And you talk a bit about in the book having to navigate all of that, not just, you know, the sudden fame that this show delivered, but just the way people reacted to the show. What kind of dimension did, did that add to it? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty intense. Luckily, I didn't get a lot of the you know, trouble that some of the producers and uh, other characters had to navigate. But I definitely write about in the book, you know, being in press tours and having things thrown at me that I wasn't expecting, um, you know, whether it's Kiefer headbutting somebody or <laughs> Rush Limbaugh kissing me on the lips yes. or the people in the press asking me about how torture is depicted on the show. And this was all something that I was thrown into. But of course, you know, you can buy my book and read about it in a funny way, which is called Famish, My Life at the Edge of Stardom, which would be a good summer read for you. I also Absolutely. talk about how I got the part in 24, which in itself was unusual because like I said, I really didn't, I tried to not go on the audition because I, I didn't really audition for dramas. So that story is in the book too. You know, Kiefer Sutherland is a Canadian icon, of course, and the son of a Canadian icon, of course, but he's an intimidating guy. It was funny. He was, his band, uh, his band was playing at the, the Calgary Stampede a few years ago, so I had a chance to interview him. And, and he was a pretty yeah. chill guy, but that was intimidating for me. What was it like working with him? Um, you know what? It's funny you should say that because I write about that exact thing in the book. He, I, it, it's, exactly how you're saying it he he's a very um chill guy but he's also very intimidating and and for that reason you know i didn't grow up um the daughter of a icon and i i certainly didn't have the background that he did coming into the show so it was it was very intimidating but um he did help me in a lot of ways and i learned about you know being on a hit TV show and, and, and sort of filling that role, I learned from him, which of course for me ended up, you know, in the end of the series, I'm, I'm split screen with him, um, which was amazing. Yeah. And, and again, you know, this speaks to the kind of the whole theme of the book, right? The odd nature of fame. And, and, you know, so 24 is a huge smash. It goes away for a while. They decide to bring it back. I think it was 2014, I believe. And so here you are, an integral part of the show, obviously. They, they need you there, but 
do that? I mean, would, would they have gone ahead without you? It seems unthinkable, but it was kind of an interesting moment for you, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't really thrilled about not being a part of it. And it's, uh, it's um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse for me to go on and do all these different things and do a ton of stand-up and write a book. And um, people people still want the show back and they want um, these stories that were left unresolved. And, um, you know, so that's... Uh, yeah, definitely a theme of the book is having these like hugely successful moments that I'm incredibly proud of. <laughs> but, you know, if you're me, you just sort of go on and, and, and try to get another job, which is what I've done. And, and certainly with stand up, there's nothing more, you know, stand up is the most exciting thing, but it's also the most humbling to right. go to all these different clubs and connect with people and, and, uh, write about it so that was the way that i've been coping with it in my own way yeah i mean it's interesting because obviously you know that that show made you well known recognizable and and you've worked with huge stars not just Kiefer. i mean harrison ford there's a chapter in the book on on harrison tom cruise and many others so the nature of fame and in being known and being famous but i you know there's that other stratosphere i guess i mean so how do you approach the question of of fame and and you know does it when and how does it apply? I mean, I do think that for me personally, I wish I was more the type of person to go into a situation and say, do you know who I am and get special treatment? But more oftentimes I get, do I know you? And I'll say, yes, it's from TV and movies. And the person will say, no, <laughs> that's not it. Is right. it from carpool? And, um, you know, it's very interesting to be the character woman who's had alongside of all these massive superstar men. You know, it's a different road to carve out, and it means something different. Each part for me is a victory because it seems like it's a, a position that I'm not supposed to be um, holding. And, and the idea of fame for me is being able to pay your bills and be paid for what you do, which is your art. Um, and it's not necessarily what everybody thinks it is, which is nonstop red carpet and getting the treatment, you know, mm -hmm. for, for most of us actors, even some that you may think, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're out here looking for the next job. So. You know, as you alluded to, I mean, you know, comedy came before acting, and obviously you, you've navigated both uh, very well. But I mean, do you see it as, as two different things that you do? I, I know for us, we kind of just lump all of showbiz in together, but but doing comedy and, and acting are, are certainly different things. How, how do you view it? I mean, I love them both, and um, I do think they're very different. There's a safety to being on the set. You can stop and you can take it again. And, you know, on the best sets, certainly there should be like a comfortability and that you can keep tweaking it until you get it right. Um, on stage, you don't have that safety net and it's just you and the audience and you're capturing that attention for that moment in time. And there's really nothing like that. So definitely come out and see me. Uh, yuck, yuck. <laughs> and, and we'll get into it and we'll share some laughs and I will have um, books available and to sign for people that you can buy. 
You also talk in the book about what the last couple of years have been like. And I mean, it's been disruptive for, for so many of us in so many different ways. But I know for, you know, those that do comedy as a living, that, that was a real challenge, obviously, as, as no one was hosting shows. Obviously, you know, the, the whole world of showbiz was disrupted and how it affected your personal life, all of that. I mean, it, it was, um, I don't know, rough two years. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because I had kind of been on a bit of a break, married and, you know, raising a family, and I was getting ready to do a bunch of live gigs, and then COVID hit, so, you know, all my live stuff got canceled, but it did give me an opportunity, which I'm sure, like you said, all of us had to, you know, were forced to kind of do different things, and for me, I feel very lucky that that thing was to write a book, you know, because I, I kind of had to pivot and having the time and realizing like, wow, I've had quite the career and lived quite the life. And I think, um, you know, the idea of famous and, and what that means on the surface level, you know, I write an anecdote about being invited to the Golden Globes, but not getting a plus one. Right. So that's just like a really, really blatant, you know, showbiz thing where it's like, oh, this was supposed to be really fancy and it's not. And, you know, I tell a hilarious story about drinking to try to solve the problem Well, you can guess how that turned out was like an outburst to Sheryl Crow. Um, mm -hmm. But I also equate the idea of famous just to life in general. You know, for me, it was also being married, having a family, and then getting divorced. So it's yeah. like the expectation of this ideal of something that's supposed to be a certain way. And, you know, even in success, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be and how kind of how we navigate through that. Yeah, I know there's some hilarious stories, some some interesting anecdotes about, you know, your, your career. But, you know, it's very personal, too. As you mentioned, you talk about relationships. You talk about, you know, some of these these personal stories, some of which are, I, I suppose, some level almost embarrassing. But is is there something, I don't know, is it cathartic to just, you know, sit there and, and lay all of this out? Uh, it's very cathartic. It's very therapeutic. Uh, and I'm very lucky that I've been able to... For whatever reason, I'm I'm drawn to that, and I'm able to make a career out of it. And honestly, I don't really know any other way to do it because those are the types of stories that I'm drawn to. I like to see what's behind the jokes. You know, I love I love the artistry of writing jokes, but I also like kind of the cracks in between and and where that comes from and and what's really going on. So that's just uh my preference and it's what I'm drawn to. And that's what I like to do is sort of expose the human nature of it all. Yeah. And of course the, the book, the tour, it's bringing you to our, our lovely country, a country you've worked in a country. I mean, you basically grew up right across the river from Canada. So you're almost, <laughs> you're almost Canadian in a way. I sure did. <laughs> um, yeah. Lots of uh, kids would go over to Ontario to drink. Um, right. I, I wasn't one of them. I missed out on that. I was, didn't really drink till later in life, but I'll be there now, ready ready to go. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, the book is called Famish, My Life at the Edge of Stardom, as mentioned, in Calgary at Yuck Yucks, June 3rd and June 4th, Edmonton at Yuck Yucks, June 10th and June 11th, as mentioned more at Mary Lynn, MaryLynn.com. Mary Lynn, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm so happy you had me today. Thank you so much. appreciate it. There you go. Mary Lynn Rice Cobb. 
As mentioned, I mean, Chloe from 24, Gail the Snail, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, uh, many other film and TV credits. Uh, the new book is mentioned, Famous, My Life at the Edge of Stardom, and the Famous Tour, coming to Yuck Yucks in Calgary next weekend, and Yuck Yucks in Edmonton the following weekend. Maryland, Maryland.com is the website. Our uh, uh, deep concern is about uh, the, the orphans that will see the, the murder, uh, the, murder uh, the murdering person in the in the road of Quebec City. Uh, Twenty five years after after this tragedy. Good afternoon, folks. Uh, a difficult day, certainly for the uh, Muslim community in Quebec. That is uh, Mohamed Labidis, the president of the mosque of the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec, uh, where six people were murdered. Many others injured at the hands of Alexander Bissonnette. Difficult day for that community. Maybe a difficult day, I think, for a lot of communities. Uh, because a ruling today that impacts a lot of cases. Cases that, that have many victims, many victims' families right across the country, including here in Alberta. But the Supreme Court of Canada ruling today, and this was the case of Alexander Bissonnette, who was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 40 years. Uh, the consecutive periods of parole eligibility, or parole stacking as it's been referred to, a change that was brought in a decade ago by the Harper government, is unconstitutional. So life in prison is and remains the sentence for first-degree murder. But the idea that those parole eligibility periods can be consecutive, can be stacked. In the case of Alexander Bissonnette, uh, it could have been 150 years of parole eligibility. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that that violates Section 12 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Everyone has the right not to be subjected to any cruel and unusual treatment or punishment. Unanimous ruling today from the court uh, called that change intrinsically incompatible with human dignity. So what does it mean? Why did the court uh, come to the conclusion it did? Well, joining us uh, for some analysis, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Lisa Kerr, assistant professor of law at Queen's University with a specialty in criminal law, sentencing and prison law. Professor Kerr, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I think Canadians are, are going to react to this in a lot of different ways. There is going to be some of that, that anger, that sadness, that frustration. But from a, a legal and constitutional perspective, I get the sense that, that a lot of observers really weren't surprised by this ruling today. Are, are you in that camp? You know, I am in that camp, and it's, it's partially based on the state of the law, also how things went at the hearing, and the fact that it only took two months for the court to hand down its decision. Um, it's unanimous. So this was, from the perspective of the law, a pretty clear decision. What I think is really important to emphasize, and you mentioned it in your introduction, is that Alexandra Bissonnette and others who have multiple victims uh, will be sentenced to life imprisonment. And in many cases, this will have no practical impact on whether they are ever released, mm-hmm. right? This is only about when you have the right to ask for parole. It does not mean that parole will be granted after 25 years. It only means uh, an offender has to be able to say, uh, take a look at my file, take a look at these past 25 years, and think about whether I am appropriate for release. Right. How, how do we reconcile that? Because, I mean, obviously the court does. There's there's some legal principles at play here, but it, maybe I think to, to a lot of us, it, it seems contradictory at some level that we're saying that life in prison, life behind bars for somebody convicted of, of this kind of a crime 
is legitimate, is in keeping with our, our constitutional principles. And yet at the same time, the idea of a parole eligibility that would maybe further guarantee that is, is where we cross the line. What the court said is that um, the question in this case is not really about what the offender deserves. If you're going to talk about a case like this in terms of just desserts, I mean, there is no punishment that would really suit the crime and that would really address the harm caused and the loss. And so this is a case that raises a different set of questions. It raises questions about what the Canadian state can and cannot do. And so we're, we're familiar and comfortable in Canada with the idea that we don't do the death penalty, that we don't do corporal punishment, Right, that things like flogging, drawing and quartering in the town square, that these are things from a medieval past that are no longer appropriate, no longer suitable in a society like ours. And that's kind of the analysis of the court here. We, you know, life imprisonment with 25 years without parole, that is one of the most severe sanctions in the world for um, a murder, even one that involves multiple victims. There are many countries in the world that have review periods that are far less than what Canada has. This is a severe punishment, but there is a limit on what the state can do in, in, to an offender, even where the question of what they deserve is really beyond human comprehension. When we look at, at you know, 25 then is that, that eligibility. I mean, it, it is kind of an arbitrary number here. And, and I know the court talked about, you know, I mean, the age of the offender, you know, the possibility of, of being able to apply for parole within one's lifespan. I mean, in the case of Alexander Bissonnette, I think he's still in his late 20s. He'd, he'd be in his late 60s in, in 40 years. But, I mean, how do we arrive at that number? And, and how does the court decide, you know, where, again, where, where that line is here? Yeah, these are really difficult questions because uh, the court explicitly said today that the 25-year period of parole ineligibility is acceptable, even where it's imposed on an offender, uh, you know, let's say they're 60 when they get the sentence, they're going to die in prison, right? They have no realistic possibility of parole. And the court said, that's okay. Um, the court said for, for, for when it comes to the 25-year period, that is simply a recognition of how serious it is to take the life of another. And uh, if that person dies in prison as a result, um, you know, they cited sort of longstanding doctrine that says that that's constitutionally acceptable. But when you're taking someone who is maybe in their 20s, Mr. Bissonnette, right, in his 20s, obviously um, got into some extraordinarily misguided thinking and hateful thinking in his early part of his life, What the court says is that 25 years from now, there has to be a realistic prospect that he could request release. And I think there's a recognition there that when you do these things as a young man, that a lot can change in 25 years of very difficult conditions of incarceration. And it doesn't always happen. And you can bet that if, 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 if he doesn't do extraordinarily well in prison, he will have zero prospect of any form of release. The parole board is extremely risk averse, has public safety in mind, thinks about victims. Um, But uh, the court is saying here for someone that age, who's gonna spend that long, who's gonna do that whole 25, right? Unlike unlike the guy who's 60, he's probably gonna pass away in a few years in the conditions of federal custody. Um, But when someone's that young, they're gonna do the full 25. We have to enable them to have a review. 
And there's one really important thing to the court's reasoning. The court was quite concerned about what would happen in prison, what the prison experience would be like. Would this person do any programming if they had no prospect of release? Would they behave themselves? Would they observe prison rules? They would certainly have no incentive to do so, right? If If there was no question, they would be dead before parole eligibility. So I think there's some recognition there that it's not just the length of time, it's also the conditions of confinement and how difficult those are for someone who has no prospect of release. So it's interesting, the implications of this, because we, we essentially revert back to the previous status quo prior to, to 2011, where 25 right. years is the parole eligibility. And so those who receive, for example, 75 years of parole eligibility, there's a few cases, I think that's negated. But there, there's, there's, I don't know if we, we have sort of a separate category, maybe of those who did receive over 25 years, but under 50 that they would have to to go to court themselves? So where does that leave us with some of these previous cases now? Yeah, so the court is clear today that um, the law wasn't valid on the day it was passed in 2011. And so anyone that is serving a sentence um, imposed pursuant to that law has the right to go to court and seek a constitutional remedy. Um, in the case of, of, of folks who might be in that middle zone, you know, they're going to have to make the argument um, that it's a cruel and unusual punishment in their particular case. Um, But uh, it's important to emphasize as well that there were a lot of judges over these past few years who declined to stack the period of parole and eligibility. One, you know, um, one judge said he simply refused to participate in the symbolism of it. And so, you know, judges have had a mixed reaction. Yeah. Um, and they haven't always. This was a discretionary law. They could decide for themselves whether to stack the period of ineligibility. And I think it's notable that a number of judges presented with the opportunity declined to do it. But you're absolutely right. For the other cases, those folks do have the right to go to court and ask that their sentence be in conformity with the law. Yeah, I mean, one high-profile example, Bruce MacArthur, serial killer convicted in Toronto, eight murders, and and the judge set parole eligibility at 25 years, and obviously that was before today's decision. Uh, There's one other aspect, I guess, to all of this, because this is Section 12 of the Charter. I mean, it it does fall under the parameters of the notwithstanding clause. Is is that something the government could respond with, if so inclined here? Um, I don't think there's been, a, you know, any incident of that in our in our history that I, I should emphasize, you know, for a court to find that Section 12 of the Charter has been breached, mm-hmm. um, it's a very high threshold. It has to be a penalty that outrages our standards of decency, that shocks the conscience, that's incompatible with human dignity. So this is state action that is very much at the extreme end of the spectrum. And I know there are listeners out there who would say, um, there's nothing that would shock my conscience um, in terms of what could be done to Alexandra Vicenet. And I understand that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely do. But in terms of having a constitutional democracy, right, that commitment to no cruel and unusual punishment, that runs so deep, right? That goes back to the Magna Carta. That's really what it means to have a modern society that is committed to human rights. And um, cases involving extreme criminal misconduct really take us to the boundaries 
of what it means to have a constitutional democracy because we're all very scared and very hurt and very traumatized by this kind of conduct. Um, but, but that's when these commitments matter most. Interesting perspective. Professor Kerr, thanks so much for joining us here today. Do appreciate the insight. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Lisa Kerr is an assistant professor of law at Queen's University with a focus on criminal law, sentencing, and prison law. Her thoughts or analysis uh, on this uh, decision today from the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, so it does leave some of these cases somewhat in limbo. It's not automatic in every case now that the uh, eligibility will revert back to 25 years. So we'll see how it all plays out. Now, there are some high-profile examples in Alberta we talked about yesterday where eligibility of 75 years was imposed by a judge. In the case of some really awful cases that involved the deaths of children, uh, Derek Soretsky was handed that sentence, as was Douglas Garland. So whether that automatically reverts back to 25, I, I guess, is unclear. So the courts seem to suggest that between 25 and 50 could be revisited. Maybe it's automatic for those others. That part's a little bit confusing, but that's where we stand. Essentially, we revert back to where we were in, in 2011 before this legislative change was made. We know that some of the people are worried. We are committed to protecting your access to healthcare in English. It's a historical promise that we will keep. That's Quebec's Premier Francois Legault uh, commenting after the passage of Bill 96 passed in the Quebec National Assembly. Uh, Francois Legault reassuring Anglophones and other minority language groups in Quebec uh, that they will not be negatively unduly affected by Bill 96, but many see it otherwise. See this as a major infringement on language minority language rights in Quebec. In particular, concern around health care and an expectation that doctors communicate to patients in French. This is a bill ostensibly about protecting and promoting the French language. Is that necessary, A? And, and obviously, B, is this a way to do it? And so how concerned uh, should the rest of uh, the country be? To what extent does this speak to important principles of equality that we need to live up to in this country? Now, much like with Bill 21, another piece of controversial legislation in Quebec, the government intends on invoking the notwithstanding clause to protect this legislation from any kind of constitutional challenge. So where does the fight against Bill 96 go from here? Well, one of the people involved in, uh, in this fight is prominent constitutional and human rights lawyer Julius Gray. He's a senior partner with Gray Cassegrain in Montreal and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Uh, so, are the Canadians not closely following this debate? I mean, in, in your view, how concerning is, is Bill 96? It's very concerning. It's, uh, first of all, a violation of uh, fundamental rights with the notwithstanding clause. It uh, affects just about every area of life in Quebec. Uh, nobody's better off. Francophones also lose. They're victims of discrimination in all sorts of areas. Uh, Anglophones, of course, immigrants. It's a law that leaves everybody worse off. Uh, because of some sort of cra- uh, almost crazy ideological obstinacy of this particular government. So it's a law that is very disturbing. And, uh, you know, Premier Legault says English rights will be maintained in medicine. Well, I'm certain they're not going to get in and tell a doctor not to speak English to somebody with whom he's always spoken English. But at the same time, they were challenged to... 
take medical services out of the act, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't. So what are we to think about that? Why didn't they simply say so explicitly instead of saying, don't worry, trust us? I don't think many people trust them at this point. Right. Uh, so what are we to make then of, of Quebec's use of, of the notwithstanding clause yet again when it comes to, to this well, legislation? It, it seems to me that Quebec, this present government of Quebec, believes that the charter is merely a suggestion. If it gets in the way of policies they want, then uh, they get rid of the charter or try to get rid of the charter. I think the notwithstanding clause has had as its purpose sort of surgical, very limited limitations for financial reasons or to get a, a transitional period. Quebec is using it as a complete way of opting out of the charter, and it's not legitimate and it's not right. And note that they're not only opting out of the Canadian Charter, which they claim they never signed, but out of the Quebec Charter, which mm-hmm. is just as good, really. If they only opted out of the Canadian Charter, we'd have no problem. But they're also opting out of the Quebec one. In other words, Quebec government policy ahead of fundamental rights. What kind of challenges does that pose, then, in, in terms of going to court and, and challenging well, this legislation? There are parts of the law that are not subject to the notwithstanding clause. In particular, the restrictions, very serious ones, of access to justice, because that's Section 133 of the Constitution Act, and it's not the Charter, so no notwithstanding clause. Also, the constitutional amendment that they're purporting to pass uh, can be challenged. The rest depends really on the challenge which is already going on to Bill 21, to the secularism law, because that's where the notwithstanding clause has been challenged. I'm involved in that case. I do hope that the courts find a way of limiting the impact of the notwithstanding clause. But if everything fails, uh, Mr. Bourassa, Premier Bourassa, did a very similar thing with regard to the language of commercial signs. And we took it to the United Nations Human Rights Tribunal, and we won. Uh, and Quebec complied. So I, I think there would then be an international battle. What do you mean by an international battle? Well, Canada is a signatory to the Universal Declaration of Rights, and there is a committee in the United Nations that hears appeals. And uh, in the case of the commercial signs, they decided that it was a violation of freedom of expression in international law, and therefore the notwithstanding clause had nothing to do with it. And uh, as I said, Quebec agreed and took back its law. So uh, in this particular case, there would also be uh, in, in, uh, universal declaration challenges uh, to uh, 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 get rid of some of the more uh, horrible aspects of the law. Well, looking at both of these bills together, I mean, Bill 21 and Bill 96, when you look back over your career and the many you know, cases and many fights you've been involved in with regard to, to civil rights and human rights, I mean, wh- where did these two cases rank in your view? Well, they're very important. They're- uh, you know, it's always hard to rank cases because the ones you have right now appear to be always more important than yeah. the ones you did 20 years ago. But I, I think there, is, there are two issues that are particularly important in terms of uh, uh, what I've done. I think it's very important. And you believe these are winnable fights then, ultimately? In part. Yeah. Uh, maybe in whole, but certainly in part. Well, we'll continue following all of this closely. Uh, Mr. Gray, appreciate your insight uh, on all of this, and uh, we'll see where this all goes from here. But thanks for joining us today.
Bye-bye. best. Uh, there you go. That's veteran uh, human rights constitutional lawyer Julius Grace, and you're part with Greg Cassgrain in uh, Montreal. And so he's uh, front and center in the fight against Bill 21 and now Bill 96, which he's described as the most gratuitous use of power I've ever seen. So now we got, uh, you know, two recent examples here where the, the Quebec government is very flagrantly, dare we say, using the notwithstanding clause. They basically say, look, we're bringing in legislation, which we know full well violates charter rights. And we're slapping down this get out of jail free card because we just don't care. Okay, I get that notwithstanding clause is, is controversial and, and maybe we wouldn't have had the charter if that hadn't been agreed to. But is, is this how it should be used? Basically as, as an excuse to trample on rights, freedom of religion, language rights. You know, Bill 21, I think, is, is uh, an awful piece of legislation. Bill 96 is too. Look, it's understandable at some level, the idea of protecting the French language, the French culture within Quebec, all of that. But that doesn't justify this. And as we pointed out yesterday, and as some observers have noted, there's kind of a faulty premise here. The percentage of households in Quebec where French is the primary language has not budged over the last 50 years. Over 80%. The percentage of households where English is the primary language has actually declined. So the whole idea that the French language is under threat is in crisis. It, it seems completely bogus. And just like the whole idea of protecting secularism with Bill 21 was, was bogus. So if there's a faulty premise, but the strategy is to trample on rights, that, that shouldn't stand. That shouldn't be okay. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.